0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The pizza at Comet Ping Pong gets great reviews. It's on one of those wide avenues that stretch for miles through Washington's swankier suburbs. There's a vegan pizza for 16 bucks. Of course, if you want to try it yourself these days... You'll have to get takeout or brave the patio seating in January. Just before the 2016 election, Comet Ping Pong's Instagram picked up a load of new followers. But they weren't commenting on the food or the distressed industrial decor. The messages said things like, We're on to you. Staff started getting death threats. One Sunday afternoon, a month after the election, a 28-year-old white man walked in with an assault rifle. He'd been reading about John Podesta's hacked emails. People were saying they revealed how Hillary Clinton's campaign boss was part of a paedophile ring linked to the Democratic Party and run from the restaurant's back rooms. A shot was fired, but police quickly surrounded the place. Edgar Welch came out with his hands above his head. No one was heard. Asked what he thought when he found that the fictional child victims he wanted to rescue weren't there, Welch said later, The intel on this wasn't 100%. Pizzagate was a warning of how readily regular Americans could take up arms against a phantom threat when their online diet of pet photos and sports gossip is spiked with ludicrous conspiracy theories. Mr. Alephantis, the restaurant owner, released a statement after the attack. What happened today demonstrates that promoting false and reckless conspiracy theories comes with consequences. With five days left of the Trump era, we hope, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, the Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how should Donald Trump and his MAGA mob be held to account for damaging American democracy? In his last week in office, President Trump is being exorcised from the political mainstream. Congress has impeached him again. He's been booted off social media. The PGA has cancelled a major tournament at one of his golf courses. Is this the best way to hold him accountable for the events of the 6th of January? Can the alternative reality many of his followers call home ever be extinguished? And what mistakes might be made in the rush to dump Trump? In this episode, we'll look at the legal repercussions for President Trump after he leaves office, speak to a former Homeland Security official who tried to raise the alarm about domestic extremism, and find out how to de radicalize his most ardent supporters. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, the Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are things in New York?
2: Fine, you know, homeschool and constitutional crisis, so the usual.
1: Yeah, I find myself shuffling between covering the aftereffects of the insurrection in the Capitol and fixing the printer from homeschool. It's a pretty strange experience. How about you, John?
3: I am well, doing much the same thing. Uh, For me, the alternation is between covering the attempted coup in the United States and parceling out frozen peas and uh, tortilla chips to two kids who are always at home as am i
1: and you're both looking forward to hearing lady gaga sing the national anthem at joe biden's inauguration next week
2: i did not this is the first i'm hearing of it i am very now that i know i'm very excited to hear what's her real name
3: it's not stephanie germanati stephanie something like
1: that i think her first name is stephanie
2: G- i don't think it's germanati germanata oh germanata never no, you were close
1: this is not quiz time yet. You've got to save this good stuff for later.
2: Is there nothing you don't know, John Fassman?
1: I'd like a point for that, please. You can have a point in advance. <laughs> Who would you guys have uh, to sing at the inauguration if you had your way?
2: Oh, man. For our own inauguration? You mean when we become president?
1: <laughs> I was more thinking for the next president's inauguration, but but it's good that you're thinking big.
2: I think the single worst singer of the national anthem for an inauguration, given that like the main criteria for, for doing this is that you can hit lots of high notes and do it with gusto and show off your trills would be Neil Young. It'd be like the most depressing... would be great. The most depressing national anthem, like a cat dying, as you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, like a
3: thin, warbly... Yeah, exactly. I would love that. So
2: I think I'd probably choose Neil Young.
1: <laughs> I think that's an excellent choice. Um, that would also lead to a moment of national unity as all the Americans laughed at the Canadian. Okay, We have a lot to cover, so let's leave thoughts of Neil Young behind for a moment and kick off with the big news of the week, which, of course, is that Donald Trump is now the first president in American history to have been impeached twice. When you consider that Bill Clinton's was only the second ever impeachment in American history, that means that three out of four impeachments have applied to presidents from the same generation. It's another huge political defeat for the president. And to figure out what the legal repercussions might be for Donald Trump after he leaves office, I spoke to Steve Mazie, the economist's Supreme Court correspondent. I asked him whether it would be constitutional for the Senate to try Donald Trump's impeachment trial after he
4: leaves office. Impeachment is primarily a prospective process. It's designed less to punish than to prevent future harm from a dangerous president. So if a corrupt impeached president could simply resign and thereby remove himself from the possibility of being disqualified to hold future office, we'd have a giant loophole in the power of impeachment in the Constitution. It would allow a president who knows he's headed for a conviction simply to, in effect, leave the ring and then re-enter it.
1: Right. So in your judgment, it would be constitutional for the Senate to convict Donald Trump in his impeachment trial after he's left office. There's also the possibility that Congress and the Senate goes down another route, pursuing a clause in the 14th Amendment, which is untried. I mention that merely because I know the 14th Amendment is your favorite amendment in the US Constitution. But let's park that for a moment and go on to all the other cases that Donald Trump will face when he leaves office, which are cases through through the courts, most of them civil cases, and some of them criminal. Can you give us a, a user's guide to all of those cases, Steve?
4: Sure. Um, there's a lot to say. There's a lot of potential legal peril ahead for Donald Trump in the coming weeks. Presidents enjoy fairly broad immunity from both uh, civil and criminal lawsuits while they're in office. There are some exceptions to this. The Supreme Court has said that while official conduct is immune from prosecution, unofficial conduct or behavior a president does on his own time um, as Donald or as a candidate and not as President Trump is not protected. It's like the medieval idea of the king's two bodies, the body politic, which is his royal aspect, and then the body natural, which is his status as a man, Uh, And Trump has been working this liminal space between these two bodies and has managed through endless legal maneuvers to delay proceedings. But there are a lot of lawsuits and investigations that have been brewing over the past few years that will go into high gear at the stroke of noon on January 20th. Can you break down some of those? On the civil side, Trump faces lawsuits from two women who claim to have been raped or harassed and who are now suing him for defamation. So those are both in New York. There's more trouble for Trump in New York. The state's attorney general, Letitia James, has been investigating some of Trump's business practices for nearly two years now, and has civil suits brewing involving underpayment of property taxes and other financial misdeeds. In Washington, D.C., Carl Racine, the district attorney, is suing Trump over misuse of inauguration funds in 2017. The allegation is that Trump made a very sweet deal effectively with himself to hold some inauguration events in the Trump International Hotel. Uh, Any of these suits could potentially cost Trump and his businesses a lot of money in fines, either through a court judgment or probably more likely in settlements Uh, Trump has never been convicted of a crime, but he has settled, over the course of the last three decades, something like a hundred cases. Then there's the criminal side. In New York City, Cyrus Vance, the district attorney, has been investigating what seems to be a very wide scope of potential financial crimes, including scheme to defraud, falsification of business records, insurance fraud, and criminal tax fraud. And then finally, there's a possibility that Trump could face criminal charges for trying to strong arm the Georgia Secretary of State into finding some 12,000 votes in this hour-long call on January 2nd. And then there's the small matter of his role in fomenting the violence in the Capitol on January 6th. I think that a criminal charge for that is unlikely, but Trump could face civil charges The family, say, of the dead Capitol Police officer could be looking for damages. So, Steve, Donald Trump remains the president for now and he's got a few days left in office. There's been a
1: lot of speculation about whether he might try and pardon himself during those last few days. What's your view on the legality and and the plausibility of that
4: happening? A self-pardon? Well, it's never been done. Nixon also contemplated it. And in the days leading up to Nixon's resignation, the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department issued a brief opinion, just a few lines, saying that a self-pardon would not be legal. The argument was, uh, going back to a British legal principle, that no one can be a judge in his own cause. Also, the Constitution gives presidents the power to pardon offenses. It does not give presidents the power to pardon people. So if he were to issue a self-pardon, Trump would have to essentially confess to bad things he's done, potential violations of federal law, and name them all. That is uh, a shot to his ego, and it's risky if the self-pardon is eventually challenged. Federal prosecutors could just pick up that list and, and run with it. And the other thing to note about the self-pardon is that most of the legal woes we've been talking about are violations of state law, and a pardon would not cover them.
1: John, let's start with you. It looks like the next stage in the political trial of Donald Trump is that the Senate will hold an impeachment trial after he's left office. Now, there are some disagreements about whether that's constitutional or not. If the Supreme Court finds it's not, then Congress can still fall back on the 14th Amendment to potentially bar him from holding office again. Can you talk a little bit about that clause in the 14th Amendment, which has barely been used in American history, and some people doubt even whether it could be applied?
3: Yeah, so Section 3 of the 14th Amendment bars anyone from holding office who took an oath as a an officer of the United States to support and defend the Constitution from holding office if that person, and here's the wording, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or gave aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. That's what I think some Democrats who favor the use of the 14th Amendment would use to bar Donald Trump from office. The charge would be he incited an insurrection and that amounted to giving aid and comfort to enemies of the United States. It was passed to prevent Confederates from holding office once the Civil War had ended. It has only been used once, post-Confederacy, and that was to bar someone from serving in Congress who opposed the entry of the United States into World War One. which compared to fomenting an armed attack on the Capitol seems a fairly low bar. In that case, I assume it was not challenged. I think there is a question, a legal question, whether it could apply to Donald Trump, whether it has any application post-Civil War, certainly if Congress approved legislation based on the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump
1: would challenge it. But that's the mechanism that that it would use to bar him from office. And there are different thresholds in the Senate for passing these two things. You need a two-thirds majority of senators to convict in an impeachment trial, and a simple majority, it seems, for this 14th Amendment clause. And Charlotte, the fact that either of these things even look possible is partly because it seems that the current Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, may have had a bit of a change of heart. He's let it be known that he's at least open to considering impeachment for Donald Trump. You had a few things to say about Senator McConnell on last week's podcast. And I, so I just thought you might like to um, take in that news and respond to it.
2: Um, I was feeling a little sheepish about criticizing all the public servants who remain in office for decades. I think Mitch McConnell... He does deserve some praise. He, you know, I don't know if he's had a change of heart. He definitely is open to the idea of impeachment this time around in a way he wasn't the last time Democrats moved to impeach the president. And he wrote a note to his colleagues saying that he intends to listen to uh, the legal arguments. He quote, "I intend to listen to the legal arguments when they are presented to the Senate." That's very different from Kevin McCarthy in the House. Um, there were 10 congressmen who voted with Democrats to impeach the president. That is notable, but there were 196 against. And McCarthy is trying to draw this line between holding the president responsible. He said that he does the president does bear responsibility for the attack by mob rioters, but he's against impeachment because supposedly a vote to impeach, quote, would further fan the flames and the partisan division within the country. So uh, I'm not sure how the president can bear responsibility and not be subject to impeachment. But you need two thirds of the Senate in order to convict the president. 17 Republican senators would need to join Democrats. So it is a big lift in the Senate. But I think it is, you know, it's interesting that McConnell remains open. And I think that that can be attributed both to his respect for the Constitution, as well as um, his very deep political pragmatism. And he seems to be thinking that the Republican Party can move on faster, perhaps if Donald Trump is impeached.
1: My first thought, I have to say, on hearing that news that Mitch McConnell might possibly maybe be open to impeachment was to wonder whether Charlotte's got some sort of inverse hex going on. Because a couple of podcasts ago, (laughs) you were somewhat down on John Ossoff's chances in the Georgia Senate runoff, and then he won an astounding victory. And after... Talking about Mitch McConnell and his ham sandwich eating last week, he seems to have found his conscience. So I think we ought to see if you can put this power to to use more broadly. John, how do you see the uh, forces in this ongoing Republican civil war? How do you see the sort of strength of forces on, on either side now? Last week we were talking about how the Republican Party might or might not use this as an opportunity to move beyond Donald Trump. Does that look likelier this week than last or or, or less likely after the House's impeachment vote? I think it certainly looks
3: likelier, but that's quite a low bar, right? He still holds sway over a wide swath of the party. And I think Charlotte is exactly right that the reason McConnell is open to impeachment is that he knows for the party to have a viable future, it has to move beyond Donald Trump. And he sees this as a way to do it. He is a tactician above everything else. Now, in the House, it's true that only 10 Republicans voted to impeach the president, but that makes it the most bipartisan impeachment ever. I think when Clinton was impeached, five Democrats voted to impeach him, and then when Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump were impeached, nobody from the opposite party voted to support it. So while it is not very much, and people like Kevin McCarthy who claim to believe the president is responsible but oppose the mechanism for holding him responsible, Are still a majority. It still is notable that ten people, some of them from districts that Trump won quite handily, did stick their necks out. So I would hope that their courage would inspire their fellow Republicans to do the right thing. You may have seen Jason Crow's interview in which he said a number of his Republican colleagues would vote to impeach. Were the vote anonymous, but told him with tears in their eyes that they feared for their family's safety if they voted to impeach. I think that people like those Republicans who are Holding their vote back out of fear should consider what people like Liz Cheney did. She comes from a district that Donald Trump won by 47 points and still voted unequivocally for impeachment.
2: Yeah, it's funny. When people talk about fearing for political future, they usually mean their chances of re-election. In this case, they're talking about their personal safety as well, which is such an indictment on this era.
1: Yes, yeah, it certainly is. All right, thank you both. We'll speak to a former Trump administration homeland security official about how best to deal with Trump's radicalised supporters in a moment. First, the usual reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, there's plenty more to enjoy from Economist colleagues way smarter than us. If you subscribe, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. To be sure not to miss anything, sign up to our daily email newsletter. Our weekly issue also has plenty more on the end of the Trump era, including a thoughtful essay on mobs and democracy and a Johnson column on the language of incitement. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
5: I think people just kind of get lost in the silo of their online world. They call it the rabbit hole, like you go not you fall in the rabbit hole. To this magical, mysterious world that only you can understand. So it, it can be very exhilarating, but it's also, as we see, extremely harmful.
3: Megan Squire is a professor of computer science at Elon University who tracks online extremism. After watching videos of what happened at the Capitol last week, I wanted to speak to her to try to figure out how seemingly ordinary Trump supporters wound up joining an insurrection. The online trail left by Ashley Babbitt is especially interesting, and tragic. An Air Force veteran who ran a pool supply company with her husband in San Diego, she voted for Obama before becoming an increasingly ardent Trump supporter. On January 6th, she was part of the crowd that tried to force its way through a door to the speaker's lobby that Capitol Police were defending. Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed.
5: Mostly what I'm tracking is the memes that they're making, the visual imagery of her.
3: Megan Squire saw posts portraying her as a martyr appear just a few hours later.
5: They've stylized her profile, her hair, the way her hair flowed. They've got a color scheme that goes with her. They have started talking about her as a wife and mother above her job, which I thought was an interesting choice.
3: Squire says the Capitol protest brought together disparate groups, regular Trump supporters in the extreme right, who mingle online. In real life, it made a toxic cocktail.
5: So that... I guess is evidence that they mix and mingle. I mean, we already knew that. It's just a question of how much and in what ways.
3: It's happened before. Squire identifies the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 as the peak of far-right support for President Trump. You will not replace
6: Parts of the community, the national security community, started raising the alarm in 2017 after Charlottesville.
3: Elizabeth Newman agrees. She resigned last year from leading the Department of Homeland Security office that oversees the federal response to domestic extremism. She told me that as with September 11th, which led to the formation of the Homeland Security Department, the threat has been underestimated. Newman says the wake-up call came with an attack outside the US The mass shooting at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, two years ago.
6: In the counterterrorism community, at least, it was like, oh, it's here. Like, we're too late. We had already been hearing from our foreign partners overseas that they were concerned about what they call right-wing extremism. And they were very clear with us that we were the exporters, that the primary propaganda and encouragement online was coming out of the United States.
3: National security experts were alarmed. But Newman told me the biggest failure was that nobody in the Trump administration made a public stand against right-wing extremism.
6: Usually you have the leader of your country or a cabinet member come out and give an explanation to the American public about this threat.
1: Keep going. Run
2: out
6: that way.
7: Keep going. Keep going.
6: After El Paso, it was such a critical moment. Hands up. Hands up. You had somebody using the president's rhetoric about Hispanic invasion, justifying his killings uh, with all of these racist conspiracy theories, uh, would have been a great time for the president to come out and say, I've been briefed. I I now realize that we actually have a growing threat coming from within our country and name the threat, describe the threat, understand what their intentions are. That alone, especially since it's coming from within, if we could do that on a national scale, would go a long way to stifle recruitment.
3: Newman brought up the Trump administration's approach to opioid addiction as a way in which just raising awareness of a problem can help combat it. It's about using the privilege of public office to break people's bubbles, she says. She's proud of the work she did in proving that prevention programs can help tackle extremism. But they are vastly underfunded. Megan Squire agrees that the challenge now is de-radicalization.
5: Because we know where the problem starts in many cases, which is the online world, the solution will probably have to take place there as well.
1: Charlotte, some people looking at the violence in the Capitol last week who don't follow American politics that closely might assume that the kind of violent crowd that we saw descend on Congress is a creation of the Trump era. Um, lots of them were wearing their Make America Great Again baseball caps after all. But that's not the case, is it? This is something that has been brewing for some time.
2: That's right. I was really interested in going back to the obama years in 2009 the department of homeland security released a report that described how right-wing extremism was spreading into the military and law enforcement and you saw back then from john boehner who was the speaker the republican speaker of the house um, being pretty dismissive about it he said the department is using the same term to describe American citizens who disagree with the direction Washington Democrats are taking our nation. That was a direct quote. He chided uh, the Department of Homeland Security for describing these people as terrorists. And then he said that the report was simply outrageous. And I think you saw that kind of denial and this sense that these people are, are our fellow citizens. These are our compatriots. These are not people who are terrorists. These are not people who pose a real risk. And that kind of legitimizing of, or at least failure to reject extreme right-wing people, I think did help to encourage the continued growth of these groups. The Southern Poverty Law Center in 2011 said that in the previous year, the number of domestic hate groups in America had reached more than a thousand for the first time. There was this big energy within the far right. And then President Trump went much further than anyone prior to him in legitimizing uh, what was criminal activity. There was this standoff, people may remember in Oregon, there were two men who were convicted for setting fire on federal lands. And there was a lot of outrage that their conviction and that their prison uh, sentence amounted to something that was unjust. And then that prompted a guy named Bundy to break into a wildlife refuge with a bunch of other armed men. And there was this standoff with federal officers. He wanted to, Bundy wanted to reclaim the land and have a lighter sentence for the two convicted arsonists. Trump went on to pardon those two men, the men who had set fire on federal lands. And I think that's an example of the way in which people who were committing unlawful and certainly delegitimate acts were brought into the fold of the mainstream by President Trump, that he didn't invent them. They certainly existed. And indeed, uh, different branches of the government and as well as nonprofits warned of their existence and the rise of these right-wing groups. And then Donald Trump, as, as has been well understood by now, helped to bring them in, helped to give them new platform.
1: I covered the Obama administration for The Economist, and during his presidency, there were several plots uh, undertaken by far-right, you know, violent racists, and they were taken seriously by law enforcement. But I think there was a view generally that these people were such a bunch of crackpots that there's perhaps not all that much you could do about it other than you know, try and track them through law enforcement and track them on social media and you know, try and prevent the next thing from happening. And then during the Trump administration, as Charlotte and John have already mentioned, I think there were more of these incidents. We haven't mentioned the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, and of course the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville, etc. But at no point really has the connection between Donald Trump and these people, been entirely clear, in my view. I mean, after Charlottesville, there was a lengthy debate about whether it was Donald Trump's fault that those folks had shown up at the Unite the Right rally. I'm not sure the connection was that tight. Clearly, his behaviour afterwards in saying there were very fine people on both sides was shameful. But I think that changed last week with the Capitol Insurrection in that you had this very close connection between Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr., going on for months about the stolen election, inviting people to go up to the Capitol, and those people who we've seen over the past four years at some of these really fringy events. Julie showed up and did the president's bidding, and so it feels like at the end of the Trump presidency, there's been this very tight connection between the president and this group of people that previously, I think lots of Republicans could say, well, hang on, these are a bunch of wingnuts that are not really associated with us in any meaningful way.
3: I think Republicans may have had plausible deniability up until January 6. But there's no question that Donald Trump's rhetoric is far closer to what you hear on the far right than that of any president in living memory. I mean, the, as a candidate, he wanted to keep all Muslims out, the just naked cruelty of the child separation policy, his constant attacks on the squad, and on representatives of color. I don't think he was ordering the far right to do what they were doing. I think if you'd asked him, do you believe what the far right believes, he'd have said no, but that's just because he has no fixed belief and will magnify anyone who supports him. And the far right saw an opportunity in his getting into office to magnify their ideas. And he saw support on the far right and does not turn down support from anyone. So it was this gross symbiotic relationship that just grew and festered until
1: it exploded on on January 6th. All right, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to talk a bit more about that Twitter ban.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: If we didn't know it before, events this week have exposed the unchecked power that the tech companies have when it comes to adjudicating political speech in America. Leo Morani has been writing for The Economist this week about the rush to banish Donald Trump from social
7: media. On the night of the storming of the Capitol, Twitter silenced Donald Trump for 12 hours, saying that a couple of his tweets were inciting violence. Soon after, Facebook also blocked Trump's access or Trump's team's access to his account. Trump also got access to his Twitter account again, but soon started posting pretty unpleasant things again. And this time, Trump was banned permanently. They sort of kicked off this domino effect. Very soon after, um, Snapchat, YouTube... Twitch, which is an online streaming platform, TikTok, which is uh, a Chinese company, all of these blocked Trump, or they blocked a specific hashtags such as Stop the Steal. The dominoes kept going to the point where Peloton, which is a company famous only for making extremely expensive internet-connected bicycles, had to block the Stop the Steal hashtag.
1: So you had the various social media companies throwing Trump off. And though my life has been more peaceful, I must admit, for not having Trump's tweets and all the hair on fire responses to them in my Twitter feed, that's a troubling precedent in many ways. But it was not just the social media firms. A lot of business enterprise firms, the firms that provide the plumbing of the internet, also pulled the plug on various services that the president and some of his supporters had been using to propagate their views.
7: That's the worrying thing, John. With companies like Twitter and Facebook, and indeed with social media in general, these are debates we've been having in public for a very long time. We're accustomed to thinking about these companies as having some power over public speech. What's much more alarming to people on both sides of the aisle is when internet infrastructure firms that most normal, sensible people have never heard of, are when they get involved, AWS, which is Amazon's cloud computing arm, on which millions of websites and services rely to stay online, that took down Parler, uh, which is a much, much smaller social network that's used largely by American right-wingers. Without AWS's support, it's very, very difficult for Parler to get back online. The other two big cloud computing companies are Google and Microsoft, and it seems unlikely they're going to want Parler anywhere near their systems. Um, Stripe, which again, most people have used but never heard of. It's a payment processing firm. They've cut ties with the Trump campaign. Salesforce, an enterprise firm that most people, even if they have heard of it, have no idea what it does. It, It would be difficult for me to explain what it does. But the Republican National Committee used it to send out emails and Salesforce decided they didn't want that to happen anymore. None of these are insurmountable, except possibly AWS, but it just goes to show that the power is not just in the hands of a handful of social media companies, but rather all these sort of pretty faceless entities that most people have never heard of. So this is a much bigger and deeper debate about power online than simply about social media.
1: So, John, it seems to me that on the one hand, there are some reasons to worry about how these tech companies have acted here. Um, I'm not sure that booting Donald Trump off Twitter and off Facebook sort of permanently was the right thing to do, but on the other hand, we have this problem of right wing violent extremism that breeds online, where groups of people find each other and make plans. And it seems to me there's a very strong public interest in making that a bit harder. So do you think it's possible to come up with rules or some kind of regime that can help with both of those things? No, I don't think it's possible or really desirable to have a single
3: set of rules, or regime that binds private companies regarding what speech they allow on their platform. I know that a lot of conservatives have tried to cast Donald Trump's ban as a First Amendment issue, but it, it really isn't. They are private companies. They can decide what they want to put on their site or not. And the idea that the same people who said that a Christian baker should not have to bake a cake for a gay couple now believe that private companies should be compelled to permit people to say anything they want on their platform. I think that that circle doesn't square. I think it's going to be settled by a combination of I think that what will determine what companies allow on on their platforms is a combination of employee pressure and public pressure, which is to say, of course, financial incentives. And that's all to the good. I do think that the ban of Donald Trump from Twitter and Facebook looked somewhat capricious. I think it may also look somewhat cowardly to do it at the very end of his term once his power has ebbed. And I do not envy the leaders of these platforms their role in deciding what
1: what to allow or not allow going forward. John, it's interesting that you brought up or at least referred to the gay wedding cake case, to use the shorthand masterpiece cake shop, because I've seen various conservatives this week put that the other way around, say, hang on, liberals wanted to insist that companies in America must serve um, gay people, even if it's against the Christian beliefs of the owners to do so. But here you have lots of liberals who appear to be really happy that you've got these large tech companies who are denying services and voice to conservative Americans. So you can look at it the other way around as well, I guess. You can. I mean, I
3: think for what it's worth, this particular classical liberal who is talking right now thinks that it's wrong to compel a baker to bake a cake when he has serious religious objection to doing so. As long as there isn't a sort of a uniform ban or a cabal of bakers who refuse to bake cakes for gay people, as long as there is a place for them to get services elsewhere in the market, I don't see the great harm in allowing a committed Christian to act on his beliefs.
1: Charlotte, I feel like we're going down a rabbit hole here. Do you want to rescue us?
2: <laughs> I think that this conversation points to just how difficult it is, both to police what people say online and to try to find some kind of common ground in the national discourse. And that in many ways is the challenge that Joe Biden aspires to try to meet as someone who is not a rabble rouser by nature, as someone who's the opposite of extreme, and as someone who tries to present himself as a figure of calm civic decency. Um, And so I think it's a huge, huge task that lies ahead of him. I think the idea of national unity is a mirage, but the notion that you might have at least the mainstream come a bit more down to earth under Joe Biden, that these factions will continue to exist, but whether they can be a little bit pushed out to the sides is, is the big task ahead of him. I was struck, um, there was a piece by Tim Snyder of Yale this week, And he pointed out that the fiction that Germany lost the First World War in 1918 due to Jews, that somehow Jewish people had ensured Germany's loss, um, that fiction was 15 years old when it helped propel Hitler to power. Some of these things that you see now, you know, January 9th, Giuliani tweeted a link to an appearance he had made on Steve Bannon's podcast Um, in which he'd claimed that Capitol rioters were, quote, trained anarchists who were trying to frame Trump. And then he claimed that YouTube had censored him for making this comment, and Twitter had a little note on it saying that... um, This claim of election fraud is disputed and it can't be replied to retweeted. These kind of steps, you know, Giuliani had already made that claim and it will continue to live on regardless of what Twitter labels it with. And so some of these lies that you've seen perpetuated during the Trump administration, my hope is that they will be somewhat marginalized from the mainstream discourse under the Biden era. But they could come back. You know, these are seeds that are planted now. They could come back to Tim Snyder's point in 15 years in some future, you know, in some future political campaign, whether it's by one of Trump's children or one of their accolades. So I think that it's going to be a long time till we really understand how deeply these lies have permeated American culture.
3: I think Charlotte is exactly right. And that is why it's so important in the coming months that Republican leaders stand up and say that it was a lie that Donald Trump lost the election. They haven't done it so far, but there is still time. If it's not refuted, it will grow. If it is refuted, it may fester in in various places, but it probably won't inspire the same level of confidence that it will if Republican elites don't come out against it. And it's important to remember that it isn't just advocating violence that could get you kicked off Twitter, right? Donald Trump Jr. was banned for 12 hours after spreading misinformation about COVID-19. And I think one of the interesting things about the about the past year is the extent to which COVID skepticism has been a sort of gateway into the far right. At the reopen movements, for instance, in, in Michigan, you had anti-vaxxers, vaccine skeptics, meeting far-right activists, people who believe that mask laws are unconstitutional or that COVID isn't quite what we think it is, that seems to have led seamlessly into a tolerance of generalized conspiratorial thinking. So you can see how someone who is, who is vaccine skeptical can easily become Q-curious and after falling down that rabbit hole could become a Q-believer, which, which translates into, into other militant beliefs. I thought that Tim Snyder piece was excellent. The big takeaway from his book as from his other works on fascism are just how important it is to insist on a public square that revolves around truth and facts. And once you get past that, I think as he put it in the essay, post-truth is pre-fascism. Once you get past the agreed upon set of facts people can believe whatever they want and that's what really opens the way for a charismatic demagogue like Donald Trump to come in and hold his believers in thrall that's why it's so important that republican officials even if they are standing up for Donald Trump now out of out of sort of political calculations that in the coming months once Trump is no longer president that they communicate directly to their to their constituents that Joe Biden is legitimate president Donald Trump legitimately
1: lost Well, this is the last podcast of the Trump era. We have Joe Biden's inauguration next week. I'll talk to you guys after his inauguration, where there will be 20,000 troops, National Guard troops, on the streets of Washington, more American troops than there are in Afghanistan at the moment. But before I let you go, I have a quiz for you. The Economist reported on the first impeachment in February 1868, we wish all Englishmen would study the present American crisis more carefully, we wrote. The paper focused on the limits to parliamentary government. Andrew Johnson's impeachment established the precedent that Congress couldn't end a presidency just because it didn't like its policies. Johnson served out his term. How did he distinguish himself as an ex-president? Um, I don't know this, and I feel terrible that I
3: don't know this.
2: Oh, get used to it. Welcome to the other side. <laughs>
1: He's the only man to have served as a senator after being president. That's good trivia. Bonus point, if you can name his occupation before he entered politics.
2: I don't know. I haven't read those biographies. I'm ashamed to say.
3: I know one reason that Republicans were hopeful is that he hated the planter class. But that was because he was such an endorser of the sort of upland yeoman farmers. Was he a a farmer, a tanner or something like that, a small businessman of some kind? That's
1: pretty close, John. He was a tailor. In fact, he made some of his own clothes while he was president. After writing for The Economist on the subject, Arnold Schwarzenegger released a video this week calling Donald Trump the worst president ever. Andrew Johnson is also a contender for that accolade, but when C-SPAN asked a panel of historians to rate every president, he narrowly missed out. Who did those scholars deem to have been the worst president ever? Buchanan. It was James Buchanan.
2: Hmm. Well done, John.
1: He oversaw the sundering of the country. That's, that's unequivocally pretty bad. I don't have a lot of sympathy for Buchanan, but I feel like things were well on the way there when he, when he took the reins. Buchanan, as you say, was the last president before the Civil War broke out. He presided over the secession of the southern states and the breakup of the Union. Buchanan was also the only president to remain single. His niece acted as First Lady, which sounds a bit creepy to me. That's just <laughs> weird. Can I just pause and note, like, if
3: someone told you 30 years ago, in 1990, that in 2020, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to be the elder statesman who tries to save America for President Donald Trump, you would have thought that person was insane.
2: There's so much about what's happening in 2020 that you would have ascribed to the mind of a madman. So Arnold Schwarzenegger being but one piece of evidence.
1: Yeah. Yes, of course, we're in 2021 now, but it does feel like 2020 (laughs) will never end.
2: They've all blended in.
1: Okay. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.